2012, Christopher Paul Curtis um, published this book, The Mighty Miss Malone. It is a moving Depression-era story. I recommend it for, for older children and adults. Now, without giving anything away, I'm not going to give away this story. I want to point out the elements that I think make this story so good. Okay, here's what I really loved about The Mighty Miss Malone. There's a family that has this motto, we are on a family journey to a place called Wonderful. Uh, there's harmony between the siblings of this family, especially th there's this older brother who may be the greatest older brother ever in literary history, and his very bold little sister who wants to be just like him, and I don't blame her, I want to be like him too. Uh, there is endurance through awful pains, awful pains they endure, and then there's this encouragement that just shows up in, in, from kind people in unexpected places. And, and finally, in this story, there is a determination to reestablish broken relationships. In fact, there's a member of the family who struggles with mental illness and breaks relationships at one point in the story. But there is a complete determination by this family to, to journey as a family toward heaven. They're not going to let that break them up. Now, I want you to look at that list. Look at the list. Because God is going to instill those same traits in us today, church family. We're going to learn how to reestablish relationships through perseverance and encouragement to follow Jesus as one family to his place called Wonderful. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Open your Bible, please, to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, um, next to the last chapter of the book of Romans, and pick it up in verse 5. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus. Stop there for just a second. According to Christ Jesus, that's key for this, for this passage. The phrase according to Christ Jesus means, means following Him, following the Lord Jesus, acting according to His leadership, imitating His example. So whenever you're discussing any precept in this text, keep this in mind. We're discussing ways in which we follow Jesus' lead. Okay, got that? We follow Jesus' lead. By the way, in your notes, um, if you're online, you hopefully have downloaded the, uh, the, the bulletin that was available there. If not, you got one when you came in here. Open it up in the middle. You'll see that our notes say, Jesus leads through harmony. We see that in verses 5 through 7. Take a look. Start at verse 5 again. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. Do you see the main thrust? It's right there in verse 6, that we might with one voice glorify God. As we put in the notes, our goal is glorifying God. And just in case we missed it, at the end of verse 7, Paul adds this concept, to the glory of God. That's the key. During the 2020 pandemic, I was talking with this wonderful uh, Christian leader, wonderful leader, and he asked if I had seen his video that he did describing the safety steps that their ministry was taking. And I said, yeah, I saw it. And he said, well, what'd you think? Is there anything to improve? I said, well, since you asked, there was one thing I found flawed, and I think, I think it's a serious problem. You said at the beginning of the video and throughout something that I think's off, you said, your safety is our top priority. And he was quiet. He was quiet for quite a while. And then he said, oh, I get it. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not. God's glory is our top priority. I, you know, I think I just said that because everybody else is saying that. And, and you're, you're right. Now, do not pick on the poor guy, okay? In stressful times, leaders sometimes respond too quickly. We make it worse by pushing them to respond too quickly. But do think this through. Think this through. 
If we aim at glorifying God as our goal, safety and every other conceivable earthly concern gets taken care of, right? We glorify God by being good stewards of human lives. But if our goal is ever anything else, we will miss the most important thing, God's glory, by aiming for a lesser thing, human safety or whatever the other concern is, which we cannot really control anyway. This applies to any and every activity in human life. A discussion about race, a work conference, a prayer meeting, a softball game. If we aim for anything less than God's glory, we miss what matters most and and we miss our chance for true harmony. Remember, look, look at your text. The whole point of these things, harmony, encouragement, endurance, acceptance, is that all these things assist in the top priority of glorifying God. In fact, they're the very means by which we are supposed to glorify the Lord. As we try to summarize in your notes, the means is unity. Now, this is, this is just awesome, okay? There's a, we need to take a glance at the original text. It proves very, very important and helpful here, okay? The English translation, to live in harmony, comes from, from this Greek clause, o aftos phronein. O aftos phronein. Um, it, it means unity of thought. It means a, a positive attitude toward everyone else in the community. But there is so much more here. Okay, please, please get this. I want to show you the history behind Paul's style here. It's an unusual construction. It's a very poetic composition. He he repeats it throughout the passage, as we're going to see. It flows very nicely together, but it contains a really powerful historical illusion. Okay, those of you that are are well-educated in literature, um, if I walk up here on stage and I pick up a skull and I say, Alas, I knew him well, to what author am I alluding? Who am I alluding to? Shakespeare, it's from Hamlet, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. So educated people would understand that, or they would get that there's a way to find that out. This particular construction, every educated person in the world into which Paul wrote knows that Homer used this arrangement, and he used it purposefully and pointedly. In his Iliad, the great poet Homer described the difference between developing a sound mind and developing a sick mind, Okay. And this is the phrase he used to introduce the whole discussion. It was famous. The sound mind views life in harmony with one's companions. Uh, In the Iliad, uh, Aeneas and Odysseus are the examples of the sound mind. The sick mind had had two different manifestations, or two ways the sick mind revealed itself. One is Agamemnon. That is uh, enforced unanimity. You will do what I say, when I say, how I say it, right? The other is Achilles. Uh, You may think of Achilles as a hero. He's really not in the Iliad. He is a community destroyer. He is a divisive force that is a wild, out-of-control, raging, divisive force. Paul, brilliantly educated in Greek, writes, O auto sphronein, so that his readers can think this through. He isn't merely saying live in an attitude of harmony. He's alluding to Homer so that we know that anything else is unsound. It's a sick mind. And such was the problem with the ancient Roman system. Now, Paul, please don't misunderstand. Paul was a very proud patriot. He was a proud Roman citizen. But he knew that the Roman system achieved phenomenal things, but it did so through enforced unanimity. Look, here's how the Roman system worked. Every conquered people group, if you guys were conquered by Rome, within one generation, within one generation, your people group would would see the lifestyle and the life expectancy raised to levels never, ever seen before in human history. The, The free trade, the legal system that Rome brought changed lives very positively. However... That came with a very crushing cost. 
You see, the boot of Rome brooks no dispute. Any culture is harshly eliminated if it will not bow down to the might of Rome. It's very bold of Paul to write this phrase to Christians in Rome. You know, many of the people in those churches in Rome were high-ranking government officials, and he is subtly pointing out that the Roman system is unsound because it calls for Agamemnon-like unanimity of thought, not true unity. True unity is found through everyone in the redeemed community fixing his or her eyes on Jesus, making his glory the goal. That's why Jesus' church lasts, and Rome is just a memory. Now, following along with Paul... I feel the need to be equally bold in applying all aftos phronese to our world today. Of, of Homer's two forms of sick-mindedness, they're both still a problem. In, enforced unanimity is a serious problem in our day. Just ask anyone who is living under communism, okay? It is a serious problem. And even in the free nations, enforced unanimity poses a serious threat to real community. The death of our Christian brother, George Floyd, serves as a horrible powerful example. It's it's literary in its manifestation. Choked out by the weight of a government officer pressing. That that is the outcome of enforced unanimity. It's a product of an Agamemnon-like fear that somebody might disagree or be different. And, and, And that sickness is not limited to the police state. You know that, right? Shame, boycotts, lawsuits, divestment. These are all used today as bludgeons to make sure that nobody is allowed to express any thought that differs from the accepted secular norm. Just go to any college campus. And by the way, speaking of college campuses, let's switch to Homer's other sick mind, raging divisions. Did you know, some of you may not, there are entire departments in nearly every Western university that are dedicated to promoting division among people. These are supposedly woke leaders who demand that everyone view everything through lenses of fracture and oppression. In case you don't know, this goes today by the title uh, intersectionality. A few years ago it was called critical mindedness, now it's called intersectionality. Some of these folks are very well intentioned, but they have become, to use Paul's Romans chapter 7 phrase, they have become the very thing they hate. Look what they've done. By demanding that everyone worship at the altar of division, they have have taken any focus off of something greater, off of God, and they have put themselves or other humans squarely at the center of the universe. And like Achilles, that is destined to destroy community. Destined to destroy it. Dr. Rosaria Butterfield was one of those professors. She taught intersectionality until she came to know Jesus. I used her excellent summary about this back in our study of chapter 12, but it's, it's worth repeating. Rosaria Butterfield in Intersectionality and the Church. Intersectionality claims to create community, but the community it creates is fractured, victim-minded, angry, and inconsolable. By the way, that is Achilles. I mean, just, just go read Homer, and that, those four words right there, that is Achilles right there. She goes on. This is the exact opposite of the community created by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, close quote. So, how can you and I, how can we build Galatians 5 unity in a world of intersectionality and enforced uniformity? Let's be more specific. Romans 15 provokes us to ask, how can we enjoy harmony and unity with people who are in our community, but they have sick minds? They demand enforced uniformity or they foster raging division. How can we, let me put it this way, how can we build unity with minds as sick as our own? Uh, 
150 years ago, British pastor Joseph Agar Bede, I think he spoke for all of us. He summarized the problem this way. Um, he said, Joseph Agar Beat, our Christian character is seldom so severely tried as when we are put to inconvenience by the spiritual childishness of members of the church. I was chewing on this issue last week. I, I was at this point in the text, and I hit a point where I needed to stretch my legs. I, I needed to get out and let my subconscious mind work. Um, so I went wandering around our offices, bothering pastors who were too busy and really needed me to leave them alone, but they were far too polite to say so. And, um, and I just wandered around bugging all the staff. And, and, and as I was finishing my circuit, I came back right through out there, and I, I saw that a few of the staff had just finished a little construction project they were working on. And, and David Barnes came walking by me pushing a cart that had all of these tools on it. And he went by, and we chatted about the coolness of tools for a minute. And, and that's when it hit me. David always, and he does, by the way, David always has the right tools for the job. And so does God. If he's calling us to do something, then it follows that he's provided what we need to do it. So if we look at the text, we should be able to easily discern what tools are needed in order to build true harmony. And so it is. The required tools right there. Look at verse 5. Endurance and encouragement. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus. I mentioned earlier this clever pattern Paul uses. Look, you see it here again. More examples. O and then the, and then the, the word. Hupomones. Uh, that's what we render endurance. Uh, encouragement is the Greek O. Paracleseos. Uh, th- these are beautiful words. They're used very often in the Bible. Um, Hupomone comes from a word, this is pretty cool, comes from a word for plants putting down roots really, really deeply. Um, with deep roots, we can survive drought. We can survive storms. Uh, Parakaleo, that's a, that's a word from the military. It means to call somebody over to come join your flanks, uh, to, come, to come join the safety and protection of your line, to come fight with you and, and stand alongside. How can you possibly enjoy the fruits of unity when you are stuck in community with a jerk like me? Use God's tools. Hupomone. Root, root down more deeply. Parakaleo. Call each other over. Stand in closer formation. It is the exact opposite of our natural reaction, which is to withdraw in self-protection. The other day, I got a nasty splinter in, in my finger. And, and I wanted to pull away from the tweezers my wife was using because it hurt. It's stupid splinter. It hurt. But of course... The only way to really deal with it, the only way to prevent infection is to, is to dig deeper, to let her dig deeper. Frankly, I'm being completely honest with you here, a few of you are splinters in my life. You drive me crazy. Sometimes you hurt me. I reflexively want to pull, I want to pull away from you, stupid splinter. That's what I want to do. But I'm learning that those are the times that I need to dig down deeper. In Jesus Christ, according to him, with God's glory as the only goal, I need to spend more time with you. I need to dig more deeply with you in the Lord. So, think this through. If you notice that I'm spending a lot of time with you, (laughs) seriously, that is rare. That is rare. But it is the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. Remember, Romans 14 and 15 is not discussing sin. This is a discussion of disagreements about how to grow strong as a Christian. This is not a treatise on sin. But sadly, when we disagree about the healthiest ways to live the Christian life, we tend to react as if difference of opinion is a sin issue. For example, suppose you're convinced that to grow up really well in Christ, a person must listen to only Christian music. 
whereas I think a broader palette of music is wiser, particularly if it starts and ends with Bach. This can be the cause of very huge disagreements, right? You, you might flee from me, say, ah, run away, run away, Pastor Wayne's always staying up with the latest rock and roll music, ah, Edo, right? And I understand that, but that is not the answer. If you're going to enjoy Jesus' call to harmony, you actually need to spend more time with a rock and roll degenerate like me, not less. Listen, Paul's point is you can get along with other Christians. I know, I know they're weird. That's okay. You're weird too. If we'll just dedicate ourselves to stop calling names and start encouraging each other, if, we, if we'll persevere in our Christian love, call people over, then we can meet our goal of glorifying God in our Christian relationship. If we don't, if we don't employ God's tools of encouragement and endurance, we will not glorify God. How, how does it glorify Him for His children to call each other names? How does it glorify God for you to just run find a new church every time you disagree with someone or they hurt your feelings? You want to meet the biblical goal of glorifying God, endure and encourage each other to get along. All God's people said? Now, go back to our key preposition. The key preposition we said at the very beginning of verse 5, according to. Remember, this is all about following Jesus' lead. As we say on the right side of your notes, the requisite focus is imitation of Jesus. Think, think, think about this. Jesus is very God. He is also a sinless Hebrew person. He lives in heaven. If anyone ever had a reason to snub their noses and, and pull away from relationship, Jesus had every right to act that way toward us. But that's not what he does. Verse 7 makes it clear that Jesus accepts those who believe in him. And in fact, the, the Greek word we render accept and accepted, it, it suggests a special effort. It suggests a welcome on the part of the receiver. Jesus doesn't just accept us. He looks for us. He pursues us with open arms. Here's the deal. If, if you or I, if we're looking at our brethren or ourselves, we're going to find it impossible to really muster up a genuine welcome. It, it's, it's like those horrible mirrors at the eye doctor, like at your dad's place, where the, you, you turn that around, you look, ah! and it's just so you can see every blemish. It's horrible, right? That's what happens. If we look at ourselves or our brethren, we're going to recognize that there are flaws everywhere. We're going to inspect closely enough to realize that that person he handles stress by raising his voice, right? We're going to understand that, that she, she doesn't eat meat, right? We're going to find out that, that that couple, they think the King James is the only acceptable version of the Bible. Ah, run away, run away, right? Instead of looking at the brethren or yourself, stop and look at Jesus, according to Jesus. Jesus receives us despite all our goofiness, Realizing his reception of you, you're then naturally drawn to accept his lead and, 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 and accept one another. The result, as we put in your notes, is acceptance of each other. That, look what the text says. It says, just as Jesus accepted me, I'm supposed to accept others. Okay, think that through. Did Jesus accept me because of anything wonderful about me? Please say no. No. Heavens, no! He accepted me because of his grace alone. He even paid the full price so that I could be acceptable to him. Thus, acceptance, according to Jesus, is not just meeting someone halfway. Acceptance is going all the way yourself to engage with them. Back in my consulting days, I once had a serious disagreement with a client. It was a Christian brother of ours who lived on another side of Dallas. His Christian brother um, had, I felt, he had wrongly taken money from me. And anytime money's involved, the argument's going to be even worse, right? 
And man, I hung up the phone angry with him. I was praying about him, not praying for him, mind you. I was praying about him, right? Now, I'd been praying about him for a long time. I was really, really bothered. But you, you know what happens. If you pray long enough about somebody, there's always that turn where you find yourself, not even meaning, you find yourself praying for them instead of about them. And I had just gotten to the point where I was praying for him and I was forgiving him when there was this knock on my door. It was the guy. It was the client. He had driven all the way across the Metroplex. I will never, he, never forget what he said to me. He said, I brought your money and I just want to tell you why I'm here. Jesus paid the price to make sure that he was reconciled to me and he tells me to do the same. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. Now, one quick warning. Please listen carefully. This does not mean that we can just order our brethren around, playing our victim cards forever, being squeaky wheels. You can always tell the people who, who abuse God's call to acceptance, to pursue acceptance. That, here's how you can tell. They will always demand that you have to do things their way. They're holding up hoops for you to jump through. They don't really want acceptance. What they desire is control. Jesus, he addressed this very clearly. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, to what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We play the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sing a lament, but you didn't mourn. Huh? Right? Je Jesus is pointing out people often work very hard to find flaws with the responses of God's leaders. And they try to demand that everybody dance to their feelings. Listen. God calls Christians to go the extra mile to accept each other. We are commanded to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That's in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. But that kind of compassion is never achieved by giving in to childish demands or people's control agendas. Okay? All right, time for a true-false quiz. Let's take a quick test of our harmony. Answer yes or no. Yes or no to this question. <clears throat> After I leave church... I sometimes speak negatively about my brethren concerning non-sin issues. I didn't like that song. Her dress was so unbecoming, right? What a boring sermon, right? These are non-sin issues, but they're what we talk about. Yes or no. You know what's really sad? Most of us, including me, answered yes. But verses 5 through 7 are telling us that if we rely on Jesus... We are capable of better than that. In fact, this, this very community has proven that just recently. Sharon Grigsby, Dallas Morning News, she captured what we can be like. Really nice article, which is somewhat rare for the Morning News. Sharon Grigsby, did I say that out loud? I'm so sorry. Um, Sharon says this, the protests sweeping across North Texas this week in response to a horrific death a thousand miles away are teaching us a powerful lesson. The geography that really matters is the geography of the human heart. This feels like a moment when much of the nation is united as never before. There's no taking sides, no wealthy versus poor, black versus white, suburb versus city. I've watched a lot of powerful local responses to the heinous tragedy. She's talking about George Floyd's murder. But the one that most struck me was the 2,000 person strong, by some estimates much larger, swarm of Frisco residents, including Mayor Jeff Cheney and Police Chief David Shilson, marching Monday along El Dorado Parkway. Close quote. Many of you prayed for that march. Other, others of you walked in it. You police officers among us, you made sure it was safe. That's, that's good harmony. Well done. All God's people said, amen. Now, I know what you are thinking. 
in your Greek hero voice. I know, right now, you're asking, Pastor Wade, you just took four hours to cover three verses. How will we ever get through this before supper time? It's okay, Achilles, just no need to worry. The rest of the text can be covered a whole lot more quickly because it's a reflection of everything that's come before in the book of Romans. Paul, here's what Paul does. He, he takes what we've learned in verses 5 through 7 and he applies it to the major themes of the book of Romans. So, for example, look at verse 8. Verse 8. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers. Jesus leads in pursuing Israel by keeping promises. Jesus fulfills the promises made to Abraham. He lived his life in such an intricately perfect way as to complete hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Before he ever came in flesh in Bethlehem, Jesus was pursuing Israel. He appeared to Father Abraham. He gave the law to Moses. Jesus was foreseen by Isaiah. In Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus, the King of Israel, reaching out to the Jews with his offer of the kingdom. And he kept pursuing them even after so many rejections. The, the history is clear. Messiah Jesus keeps his promises to Israel. He is the truth that can set them free. He pursues the Jews with a passionate love. He will return. He will reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem on David's throne just as the prophets promised. You know, if I'm a Jewish believer, reading that gives me great strength to persevere in keeping my own promises by relying on Jesus' truth. And, and, and by the way, that's the point of verse 8. For everybody, Jew or Gentile, who reads the Bible, we should imitate Jesus through promise keeping. Look, see the word confirm in our text? This is so cool. It's the same construction as again. O, and then the, the verb in this case, bebia o, who I think used to be a prime minister of Israel. Um, the most literal translation of this probably would be stabilize. Uh, which doesn't work too well in English, but it, it means something you lean on. That's what the word means here in the text, something that you can lean on. When one is truthful, when you are a promise keeper, when you imitate Jesus by being stable, your word is always good. If you say you'll be somewhere, you are there. This allows others to lean on you the way that Israel can lean on Jesus. You, you can really live out Bill Withers' amazing tune, Le we're going to do it. Stand up right now. Stand up, everybody. Stand up. Come on, put your stuff down. Stand up wherever you are. Stand up at home, wherever you may be. Stand up. And we're going to sing the two choruses of Lean On Me. And you know them, I hope. If not, you'll learn it very quickly. Everybody. And you got to sway. This is, a, this is a rhythm and blues swaying song. Lean on me when you're not strong. And I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on for. It won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. Very nice leaning. Okay, now the, now the other chorus. Just call on me, brother, when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. I just might have a problem that you understand. We all need somebody to lean on. Oh, give yourselves a hand. That was really good. All right, be seated. It is time for a quick test of my promise keeping. Here's the quiz. True or false? True or false? I keep my word. My yes is my yes. I always keep my word. No excuses. Now, of course, all of life happens under the sovereign God's control. You have a flat tire, it's, it's not your fault necessarily. But as much as it's up to me, I do what I say I will do when I say it will be done. True or false? The world desperately needs that to be true, not false. 
Look, integrity is one of the major blessings that Christianity has granted to the world. The way that Jesus deals with Israel, being a stable promise keeper, that has become the model for the way all relationships should be conducted. Um, historian Tom Holland, he, he wrote about this in his book, really fascinating book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Now, get this, Dr. Holland is not a Christian, <laughs> but he offers one of the most passionate defenses for the blessing of Christianity I've ever seen. He argues quite successfully that the very concepts of truth and stability and equality, they come from Christianity and no other source. Look, look what he says. He says, the standards of fairness that are so important to modern Western peoples would not exist without Christianity. If the West had not become Christian, he writes, no one could have gotten woke, close quote. The world was changed by Christians and by Christianity that teaches integrity, promise-keeping. And, and it desperately needs that still. All God's people said? All right, next, verses 9 through 12. Here's what 9 through 12 do. They take this thesis, the Romans 15 thesis, and it applies it to all the passages in the book about Gentiles. So, go to verse 9. And so that Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy, as it is written. And here's a quote from 2 Samuel 22. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. And a quote from Psalm, 8, uh, Psalm 18. I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with His people. That's from Deuteronomy 32. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Uh, let all the peoples praise Him. That's Psalm 117. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in Him. Jesus leads in pursuing the Gentiles by showing mercy. We Gentiles have no natural portion in Israel. But for Gentiles who trust Messiah Jesus, God grafts us onto the root of Israel. We rejoice with the Jews. We hope in a Hebrew Messiah. And we glorify God for that mercy. Remember, mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. It's instead taking the payment on yourself. Friends, if we received what was fair, we would be banned forever from the presence and kingdom of God. That's what we deserve, Gentiles. You want to talk about rights? That's what we have a right to. But Jesus has shown mercy. He's given us His mercy. Once in a blue moon... Not, not so often that it undermined the truth. I would do an exercise to teach our kids mercy. I would sit down with the kid who was rightfully about to be punished, that had been sitting and stewing for a while, which is the worst part of being punished, waiting and waiting. And I would go in and I would say to the kid, hey, I, um, I want to make sure you understand mercy. God has shown me mercy. Jesus has shown me mercy. That means that he took my punishment that I deserve, and, and he took it himself. So here's what we're going to do. You did this. Here's the punishment for it. I'm going to take that punishment on me so that you can understand mercy. And then I would leave, and I would take the punishment. Jesus made it clear that his earthly ministry was, first of all, directed to the Jews. But he was also dedicated in fulfilling Abraham's covenant by showing mercy to the Gentiles. That's why this is awesome. The, all, those, all those quotes we just had and what we just read that were from the Old Testament... Every one of those quotes that we just read was from the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Lots of other quotes in Romans that are all from the Hebrew Old Testament. This was decidedly from the Greek just to prove Jesus' point. Before he ever walked on this earth, Jesus spoke as God to Abraham promising all the world, which is the Gentiles, will be blessed through your offspring. When Jesus was being blessed as an infant, uh, Simeon spoke in the Holy Spirit in the temple and he called that baby Jesus the light of the what? Anybody know it? 
the Gentiles, and the glory of his people Israel. Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman. He called Roman centurions to him. After his resurrection, he sent Paul as a particular apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus showed Peter this vision, which proved to Peter that in this dispensation of grace, everyone is clean, even Gentiles. There, there's a part of the book I recommended earlier, the, the Mighty Miss Malone. There's a part that displays this really beautifully. I'm not giving anything away. There's, a, there's an unnamed character who ends up really in need of mercy. And the family pursues him. That's what we must do. We should imitate Jesus through mercy giving. Pursue opportunities to show mercy. I saw this vividly lived out not too long ago. Some friends of ours moved to Italy and they enrolled their two kids in the local schools. Um, one class, the older son, his class treated him as new kids are treated almost always all around the world. Uh, cool inspection and a certain amount of rejection, he pretty quickly lost heart and he struggled in school. The other boy, get this, his very first day walking into his new classroom in Italy, the teacher had all the students line up and they all stood there and they sang to him a song in English on purpose so that he would feel welcomed. That beautiful teacher made sure that that boy was welcomed with affection and the class, of course, all followed her lead. They, they showed mercy. No one was allowed to pick on him, even though he's very different. And no one was allowed to call him anything but his name. Now, let me ask you, which son do you think persevered in his language study? Which one? The one who was shown mercy. Which one do you think became so engrafted into Italian culture that he still speaks in it all the time when I'm trying to get him to speak English? Which one do you think? The one who was rejected or the one who was shown mercy? The one who was shown mercy. Over the years, I've watched many people, wonderfully, many people come and join this family, the, the body of Christ. They're all sinners. They're all strange people saved by God's grace alone through faith alone just as we are. Each of them is part of our forever family that is on our journey to a place called Wonderful. If we imitate Jesus and how he accepts us, if we accept this new Christian with mercy, if we pursue them with mercy, they find hope because you know what they don't know yet? They know what you know. It's hard to live as a Christian this side of heaven. But if we show mercy to them, they get hope to persevere through that difficult journey this side of heaven. But if we treat them without mercy, they, they will often quickly lose heart. Time for a quick quiz. Text, a quick test of my mercifulness. Look, look at verses 9 through 12. You see the with? You see the repeated all in those verses? Um, here's the question. Do I really think in terms of all? When, when I picture the, the unity of the body of Christ, do I picture people very different from me or merely those with whom I am comfortable? If you answered no, I, I don't really think in terms of all. Here's the problem. You are far less likely to show mercy the way Jesus does. Okay, let's get to the final verse of our series. And by, by the way, the rest of chapter 15 and chapter 16 are awesome, but they're a contained unit, and, and frankly, they're one we've studied a number of times before. So we're going to end the series right here at verse 13. Read verse 13 of Romans 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The triune God leads us in all hope, joy, and peace. The triune God is involved in our lives. This whole section has been about Jesus. Now here the Father is mentioned along with the Spirit. The triune God, one God in three persons, He pursues us in order to fill us with hope and joy and peace. So much so that we overflow from His power. And it is His power. God does the filling. We can only do the things God wants done because of the things God has done. We cannot live in harmony with people on our own power. It's impossible. 
We cannot even follow Jesus' lead alone. Having him as an example is great, but it doesn't really help when your flesh is completely incapable of following his example. Because my basic nature, just like yours, is a sick mind. We are sinful. As Paul said earlier in Romans, nothing good dwells in myself naturally. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's how we abound. How we display all this unity Jesus is calling us to live out. By God's filling, that's how we glorify him. Not through our efforts alone but through a surrendered partnership with Him. Anybody felt a, uh, a lack of joy or hope lately? Seen that around you? Anybody felt a lack of peace or noticed a lack of peace around you? God wants us to have true hope, joy, peace. Paul prays for that. And in verse 13, Paul takes us back to the very first thought in this section. We will not find these answers on earth. They're only found according to Jesus. The hope, joy, and peace we seek is only available for those who submit, who follow Jesus. Look, they're, they're bookends. Verse 5 and verse 13 hold the entire passage together. When, when I rely upon the Holy Spirit to fill me and help me abound in following Jesus' lead, well, well then I can keep my word. Then I, then I can give mercy. When I live between 5 and 13, I can have harmony with my brethren. When I live between 5 and 13, I can overflow with hope. I have joy and peace from God Himself, even when my brethren disappoint me. Final word in our notes reads this, a quick test of living according to Christ. Now this quiz is actually not coming from me. This one's going to come directly from God. Today, tomorrow, every day, you and I will be receiving opportunities from God. As good tests are designed to do, these opportunities will show where we're deficient, where we need help. I'm not going to presume to know what form your personal quizzes will take. Here's what I do know. I do know they will expose where each of us needs to grow in our following of Jesus. Just, just look at the words. The words from today's passage should be indicative of each of us. When God tests you today, tomorrow, this week, when, when your life is being measured and shaped, look for these terms. Look for these terms to be true of you. Harmonious, unified, enduring, encouraging, promise-keeping, merciful, joyful, hopeful, peaceful. But in times of stress, quite frankly, the, the norm is not that. What we see instead is a great deal of the antithesis of living between 5 and 13. What we see is this, divisive, whiny, quitting, comparative, promise-breaking, demanding, joyless, hypersensitive, and fearful. When you see those things reflected on your test score... When, when, let, me, let me put it this way. When people outside of your echo chamber imply that those could be true of you, own it. Make no excuses. Repent and beg God to change you through his word and his spirit. Now, we lack the time to score our way through these words right now. I do feel confident that we will have ample opportunity in the days to come. So you can take that list with you and think through these terms. For now, let's do this. Let's assume, can we do this? I think we can assume that at least a few of those negative terms are, are true of each of us. Can we assume that? You think that's valid? Then what's our response? To repent. Shall we? I tell you what, if you, wherever you are, if you're able, if you wish, why don't you kneel? Let's just spend some quiet time in repentance. I'm, I'm going to kneel. Let's just spend some quiet time before the Lord in repentance. Let's think this through with the Lord. Divisive, 
whiny, quitting, comparative, promise-breaking, demanding, joyless, hypersensitive, fearful. Own those as they are true of you. Take the thought captive. Go to the Lord in repentance. Try and God change my sick mind into a sound one that is harmonious and unified, enduring, encouraging, promise-keeping, merciful, joyful, hopeful, and peaceful. According to Jesus, let me rely, let each of us rely upon the Holy Spirit and thus powerfully imitate you as hopeful, joyful, unified believers. Father, we beg you to do this by your grace and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.